Welcome to Fracking and Health, Ask an Expert. The Endocrine Disruption Exchange has been studying the health impacts from unconventional oil and gas development, also known as fracking, since 2004. In each episode, our Executive Director, Carol Kwiatkowski, asks an expert to answer a question on how fracking may affect your health. You can submit a question at TEDx.org. Welcome to episode 16, where we ask, what risks do pipelines pose to a community? I'm talking today with Carl Weimer, Executive Director of the Pipeline Safety Trust, a nonprofit organization promoting pipeline safety through education and advocacy. He has served on committees and in advisory roles for the U.S. and Canadian government, as well as for state and local authorities. He was honored in 2015 as a champion of change by the White House for his pipeline safety efforts. Welcome, Mr. Weimer. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in. Why should we be concerned about pipelines? Well, I think the main concern with pipelines is they're pretty ubiquitous throughout the country. There's uh, over 3 million miles of pipelines uh, running through our communities. Um, they're broken into four major types of pipelines. There's gas transmission pipelines, the very large gas pipelines that move gas across country. There's hazardous liquid pipelines, about 200,000 miles of those uh, that carry gasoline, crude oil, diesel fuel, those types of things. Uh, gas gathering lines in production areas, there's 450,000 miles of those and they're almost completely unregulated. And then finally, there's the small gas distribution pipelines that bring gas right to our homes and to our businesses. And there's over 2 million miles of those. And uh, those are just about in any neighborhood that has natural gas. So lots of hazardous materials flowing through pipelines throughout our communities. And when those pipelines fail, it can cause both acute and long-term damage. And why do pipelines fail? Well, there's a number of reasons and no two failures are the same, but for the most part, uh, there's kind of a series of different things that cause pipelines to fail. Um, for, for instance, if you look at hazardous liquid pipelines, the major cause is just problems with the equipment themselves, problems with the welding that holds the pipelines together, some of the materials or just equipment failures along the pipelines. Second main cause is corrosion. You put a metal pipeline in the ground for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, um, and corrosion is a real problem. And that's about 25% of the failures on those hazardous liquid pipelines are from corrosion. And then there's a whole range of other things, such as um, excavation damage, somebody digging and hitting a pipeline, um, just running the pipeline wrong and overpressurizing it, and then a bunch of earth movement types of things where a pipeline is in a landslide area and a landslide or a flood or something like that will take it out. So it's a range of things. Interestingly, the, the industry says they have control over 60 or 70 percent of the failures that happen in the country. So, um, you know, the industry says they can control these things, but they still aren't. And we're still seeing about 300 significant pipeline failures a year in the U.S. Wow, and can you say a little bit about um, the steps that are taken, the decisions that are made when there's a failure, you know, response times, things like that? Yeah, and it varies from pipeline to pipeline, but uh, for the most part, all pipeline operators are supposed to have, you know, emergency response plans of, of uh, what they're gonna do if there's a failure. They're supposed to coordinate those plans with local emergency response officials. 
This is something that's been a lot of work on over the last decade because the reality is that companies have not been communicating that stuff very well with local officials. And sometimes it's the local officials who just won't take the time to learn the emergency response. Um, but it varies, you know, if it's a natural gas pipeline that ruptures, um, sometimes they will burst into flames or explode. The majority of times they just are leaking a lot of gas, uh, but it can be pretty scary, loud noise. Basically, they shut the pipeline down and it varies how long it might take them to shut the pipeline down and they just let the gas vent out. Um, that'll put out the fire eventually if there is a fire or the gas will will stop. So the immediate impacts from that can be the pipeline can actually come out of the ground because, you know, these pipelines are sometimes operating at pressures of 800 to 1,000, even more than that pounds per square inch. So uh, it'll blow the pipeline right out of the ground. There's huge concerns about uh, the impact radius around a natural gas pipeline if it should catch fire or explode. Um, and then just, just the methane going into the atmosphere is a huge concern these days for climate change because methane is a more powerful gas on climate than even carbon dioxide. For hazardous liquid pipelines, it tends to be a little different if they uh, leak or rupture. You know, the liquid, whether it's crude oil or gasoline, will come up out of the ground and flow along the train. Um, sometimes it will get into waterways. Um, so there's lots of different concerns with hazardous liquid because um, it can also catch fire or explode, um, but it also can uh, pollute the groundwater if it's in the ground or if it flows to surface water, it can pollute rivers and creeks. And there's been some spectacular instances of that. In 2010, there was a, a failure of a crude oil pipeline in Michigan that dumped almost a billion gallons of crude oil into the Kalamazoo River. Uh, so a lot of those are kind of environmental and acute effects of uh, people that get impacted by explosions or fires. And then I think there's long-term health effects, especially from the hazardous liquid pipelines, because they contain so many uh, toxic chemicals. Can you say more about the health concerns around pipelines? Yeah, I think that, you know, the immediate concerns are certainly with fires and explosions, uh, the impact to people living nearby. For natural gas pipelines, it's pretty easy to kind of um, look forward and, and predict what the impact zone around a pipeline is if the pipeline should explode. And, and it, oftentimes it's hundreds of feet. Um, so, you know, people living near pipelines are concerned about that. For hazardous liquid pipelines, it's harder to predict the impact zone because of the way the fuel flows. Uh, so the immediate concerns are still injuries, deaths, you know, pollution of the environment. The long-term concerns are more from hazardous liquid pipelines and they're from all the chemicals that come out. And we've seen a number of uh, spills. Um, the one I mentioned in Kalamazoo, Michigan, the one, there was one in Arkansas where crude oil was flowing through neighborhoods. There was one right through the middle of Salt Lake City. And all of a sudden you have all kinds of toxic fumes from VOCs, benzene, formaldehyde, those types of things in the air that people are exposed to. And can be kind of short-term acute exposure that causes, you know, breathing difficulties, uh, headaches, even seizures and those types of things. But the long-term exposures to those types of chemicals are less clear. And after every one of those big spills, there's always call for long-term health effects and to figure out what people have been exposed to. But uh, to date, the government related to pipelines anyway has never done one of those long-term uh, ex exposure things. 
Then there's some other more specific issues around health issues for pipelines, like the big natural gas pipelines have to have a compressor station to move the gas through the pipeline, and those compressor stations tend to be every, oh, 20, 30, 40 miles along the pipeline. Well, those compressor stations also often burn some of the natural gas to push the gas through the pipeline, and so there's emissions from those compressor stations, and those emissions can contain things like carbon monoxide, again, VOCs, formaldehyde, um, particulates. Um, so people living near the compressor stations kind of are exposed to higher emissions from uh, the compressors that help move the fuel through those pipelines. And when there's a, events that happen, it seems there's a lot of decisions that have to be made around, do you evacuate people? You know, how do you measure the degree of contamination in the soil and the water? When can people return? And those are decided by different people. Can you talk about who's in charge of pipeline safety? Yeah. Um, ultimately, you know, the U.S. Congress sets the pipeline safety rules. Every four years or so, they reauthorize the National Pipeline Safety Act. This is the year they're going to be doing that again. So they set some high-level rules, and then within the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration is, is actually the group that sets the, the rules for the whole country. So most of it comes from the feds. That's where it, where it starts and where the base regulations are, are set. Um, local state governments can then uh, ask the federal government to have some authority over pipelines. And if the feds grant them that authority, then state governments can actually pass stronger pipeline safety rules, but only for pipelines that don't leave their state. If a pipeline leaves the state, crosses a state border, and then it's considered an interstate pipeline, and only the federal regulations apply. So most of the regulations start at the federal government, and that, that's where the base starts. When something goes wrong with a pipeline, you know, the pipeline industry themselves are in charge of their emergency response planning. Um, so that's what they're supposed to share with the local emergency responders. Often when something goes wrong, though, you, you all of a sudden have a local health department that's in charge of making a decision about whether to evacuate people or not. And there aren't very clear protocols or even authority of who makes that evacuation decision or when you make such an evacuation decision. It varies from state to state, from county to county. Um, and oftentimes there's much confusion and people don't get evacuated as quickly as at least we think they ought to. Um, there's no clear measurement of, you know, if you, what's in the air, of that means you ought to have an evacuation. It's unclear oftentimes who's in charge of calling the evacuation. One of the problems is that there are no measurements that really determine the long-term health effects. Clearly there are long-term health effects, but when something happens on a pipeline, no one is monitoring and there is no clear measurement of what those effects may be. So there isn't any clear you know, protocols for if you see a certain part per billion of benzene in the air, whether that means people should be evacuated. So that whole particularly long-term health effects and what you're exposed to after a pipeline rupture is really a, a gray area that needs a lot more work. Um, and that's one of the huge issues uh, because there isn't any clear protocols for when to evacuate people. So tell us about what your organization is doing to address pipeline safety and maybe something about what others can do. 
Yeah, like I mentioned, the, the Pipeline Safety Act gets reauthorized every four years. We're a relatively small organization based out of Washington State, very few staff, and we, so we really focus at the national level because that's where all the rules start. Um, so this year we'll be testifying to Congress. I think we've been scheduled to testify in April already, um, trying to push Congress to change some of the high-level rules. We also work with the federal regulators um, when their rulemakings come out to push for stronger rules. Most of the rules that govern pipelines right now are very performance-based. They, they basically tell the companies, keep an eye on your pipeline, look for risks, decide what those risks are, and then mitigate those risks. And there's not very, there's not much specificity in those rules about what pipelines are supposed to do. You know, after each one of these failures, um, it becomes clear things that pipeline companies should have been doing that they haven't been doing. And those are the types of things we push for in the rulemakings. Unfortunately, pipelines for the most part are out of sight, out of mind, and most communities don't think about pipelines until something goes wrong or until a new big pipeline is being forced through their community. So often we're the only ones commenting on pipeline safety rules and regs. So we'd love to get more people involved in when these comment periods open up and when uh, federal and state regulators are working on pipeline rules, it'd be great to have a group of people that were interested in those rulemakings because that's really where a lot of change can happen. Um, but often we or maybe a handful of other groups from around the country are the only ones that are weighing in on those rulemakings. Well, there are a lot of people talking about pipeline safety these days, and I think it, uh, that may all benefit your work, and uh, hopefully people can reach out and connect with you. I wanted to thank you for your time and informing us of all this important information. Well, thank you for talking to me today. And, uh, you know, pipelines with uh, 3 million miles around the country, they affect all of us, and we hope people will start paying more attention and get more involved. I agree. Thank you. TEDx is a nonprofit research institute funded by grants from private foundations and by donations from individuals like you who care about our health and the environment. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider making a tax-deductible gift to TEDx so we can continue bringing you the most up-to-date scientific information on the impacts of fracking on your health. Please visit our website at tedx.org for more information on what we do, to submit a question for an expert, or to make a donation. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.